to Miracle Nutrition with Hardy White. I'm Hardy White. Join me now, won't you, for a full hour of me talking and you listening and me listening to you not talking. Just because there's nothing coming into your senses doesn't mean they're not aimed and ready. A radio telescope is always aimed at the sky. There isn't always messages from aliens, but when there are, don't you want to be ready? Not long ago, I completed two very different plays, but I have forgotten the names of them. Now, one of them is called My Dinner with Butchie, and the other one is called My Dinner with Hardy, and I don't know which one is which. So I'm going to present one tonight to you, and I got to tell you, I don't know which is, I don't know if this is My Dinner with Hardy or My Dinner with Butchie. They are very, very, very different uh, pieces. So, whatever. My name's Butchie Spinoza. I'm on a radio show called Miracle Nutrition with Hardy White. It's Hardy White's show, but I'm on it quite a bit. I'm sort of a significant part of it. I am one of the three legs on a three-legged stool so I'm off to actually meet Hardy to have a meal together. He called me not long ago. He said he wanted to talk about something. I said, all right. Uh, what's in it for me? He said, I will buy you dinner at a fancy restaurant. Oh, I couldn't pass that up. You know, I don't mind people buying me dinner. I don't got a lot of money. I don't care who knows. I feel like everybody owes me money already. Once you know me for a while, you're probably gonna wanna pay me something. And so, I just take that before you think about it because I don't want you to have any guilt. And so I tend to take people up on meals that are often my suggestion. Like I might have been bugging him for months to take me for dinner. So when he finally called, of course I jumped at it. He said he wanted to talk to me about something. Now, that bothers me a little bit. I would prefer that we ate in silence. But it's gonna be one of those things where he's got some idea and then he goes into a real long manic spiel about it. Sometimes this can be entertaining. I enjoy it. I just don't tell him I do because I don't want him to, you know, I don't want to get a swelled head. Good evening. Yeah, I'm uh, Butchie Spinoza. I'm at Mr. Hardy White's table. That table is still being prepared. Uh, you're welcome to wait at the bar. All right, thanks. Oh, hey, Butch. I hope I didn't keep you waiting. I've been here for an hour. Yeah, I'm sorry. Uh, oh, hey, they got our table ready. Let's sit down. So what's on your mind, Hardy? You said something about performing live or thinking about performing live? Yes. If by thinking about performing live, you mean thinking about a time I once performed live, because, Butchie, I you, lately I am just obsessed with this one particular time that I performed live. It was the first time that I'd come up for a WFMU marathon live performance. I mean, I had been on the air for two years, but I'd never appeared there, and I had certainly never performed in front of people, and I never performed in front of the people that I had 
heard from on the radio that had heard me, and so it was a very unique situation, and I didn't know what to do. Now, this was before they had Monty Hall, the performance space in WFMU, and so we had a show in New York City, in the East Village, in this place that used to be called Brownies, but I think at the time was called Hi-Fi Bar. And my friend, my friend Chris White, worked there, and so he arranged for me to perform there, and FMU decided that they would do this sponsored performance of Hardy White, and I would get on the stage and I would talk to people, and it wasn't much of a stage really, it was just really tiny. I don't know what kind of music acts they had there, maybe just a single person with a guitar or a trio or something, but I was gonna perform there. I didn't know what the place looked like before I got there. I just knew it was in the village and I had these kind of romantic visions about what it would mean to perform in the East Village. And so I kind of looked into my brain and thought about heroes I had and I came up with Wally Cox, who had done really innovative stuff in this area in the 1950s even. He was doing kind of strange meta art. He was doing comedy about comedy in a way. He was playing with the audience and I thought, this is great, I'll do something experimental. And so I thought about Wally Cox and then I thought about Wallace Berman and I don't know why, I'm not even a real big fan. All I really know about him is he was on the album cover of Sgt. Pepper's, he's in there, he's a face with a beard, but he was also an artist and he was a collage artist. And I thought, well, Vicki Bennett's a collage artist, Wallace Berman is a collage artist, Maybe they have something in common with Wally Cox. And so I put them together in my head and I thought I'm gonna do something that relates to Wally Cox and Wallace Berman. Maybe it's some sort of chant. I'll just say their names over and over again. I don't know why I didn't think of Wallace Shawn. I don't know why Wallace Shawn wasn't the first name on my lips when I thought of Wally Cox, but it wasn't, it was Wallace Berman. And so I did this chant, I remember that. But I also remember that I thought if I was gonna go into this place that the performance was gonna start the minute I got there. I don't know why I thought this was a good idea. I guess I thought about how Wally Cox was a bit of a grandfather to Andy Kaufman and that kind of put on comedy. And so I decided, hey, they don't really know me here. They don't know who Hardy White is. They don't know what I'm like. I'm gonna go in to that performance space and I'm gonna start performing immediately. Now it's gonna be tough for me because it's really strange to be less than yourself in front of people that you already know. And you don't wanna be in character in a hostile sort of way, say, oh, this is, now I am this Hardy or something. It'll freak people out. You gotta be yourself, but at the same time, you gotta be more than yourself. And so I came in to the space kind of acting sort of weird. And I remember I, I lay down, I took an inappropriate nap in a booth. And I remember Irwin came over and said, are you okay, are you okay? And maybe he was used to dealing with people who are on the fringe, who are sort of outsider artists who are also junkies or something and thought, well, maybe he's having some kind of junk nap. But I wasn't, I was just pretending. I wasn't even pretending to be on drugs. I guess I was just pretending to be tired. I don't even know why that's a good idea. But I did it and I lay there and I did some other strange things. And I think I ran to the door and back. Now this always will upset any kind of security people and it did and I had to explain that I was doing an act to somebody because I would run out onto the street and yell something and run back in. And apparently, although it's something I had done in small towns in New York City, this is strange and disruptive if you're doing it on purpose. Now, if I was doing it just as a matter of course, people would ignore me as a matter of course. So it's funny that I was doing art and they were noticing something that if it wasn't art wouldn't get noticed, but it's identical. Now, they didn't know I wasn't crazy, and maybe I am crazy. 
well, all this performance art stuff and all the things that I had arranged and I had known from previous performances I had done, even though it was limited, that it's always good to have handouts. And I think I handed out pictures or something, old photographs maybe, and I'd written things on the back, which is a really small town avant-garde thing to do. And everybody will get a picture and everybody will get a poem and it's out of context and you think you're a surrealist. So I did that. But then I thought, well, I'm going to have to get on stage and say something. I'm going to have to talk the same way I do on radio. Where's that going to come from? What am I going to talk about? Can, tell me what to do. He said, it's up to you. Do whatever you want to do. But yeah, I tell you, I was terrified. I don't know what to do when someone says, do anything. That's like having an infinite menu. You're paralyzed by fear. You can't make a choice. It's much easier when you do have the Monty Hall paradox, at least you have three doors. Door number one, number two, number three. This is an infinite amount of doors, which means an infinite amount of goats or old push carts or something like that. They're not all cars. And even if they are cars, you know, there's taxes on those. So I decided if I was going to go to the East Village, I would do something topical maybe. When's the last time that a person from Kentucky spoke in New York? I think it was Lincoln, probably some in between but I knew about Lincoln, and I know that he came to Cooper Union. And I don't know my New York City geography well, but it can't be that far, right? So Cooper Union had hosted Abraham Lincoln, and he spoke there, and he gave a very famous speech, and I don't know what he said because it doesn't matter. The one detail I do remember is that people who heard it noted that his accent and his speech pattern was different than we think it is now. They said he spoke in a high nasal staccato, which is really strange because the Lincoln we think of has a really deep baritone. And he says things like, I'll wrestle your it on insurance ads. But no, the real Lincoln is different. So I thought, well, I'll point that out. And I had recently been to the Lincoln birthplace in Kentucky. I don't know if you've ever been there. Have you ever been there? It's a really strange place. It's a really strange place because they have Lincoln's tiny cabin inside a sort of, I don't know, classical Greek temple. There's no other way to describe it. It's marble, it's a Greek temple, and inside, instead of some altar to the gods, there's a log cabin, the kind that people lived in modestly, or maybe not so modestly. I've seen very fancy ones in the hills. People say, oh, I've got a vacation cabin, and then you see it, and you go, oh, it's a condo. But this is a humble little abode that the Lincolns lived in, right before they got fed up with Kentucky and fled forever. But here it is, and it's enshrined. And right before you get there, right before you get to the Lincoln birthplace, you stop by this place called Lincoln Childhood Home. And I guess it's different. But this is a cabin by a stream. And I think the stream is called Knob Creek, which is also a whiskey. And there's a little plaque there about some young boy who saved Lincoln from drowning. And then that young boy grew up and he spent his whole life bragging about having saved Lincoln. And then I thought, well, saved him? He saved him from drowning. But for what fate? Did you really save him? Or did you send Lincoln on his way to a tragedy? So I thought I'd mention that and I'd put these all together and somehow, somehow Wally Cox is going to link up to Abraham Lincoln and everything's going to be fine. Everything's going to be fine. I decided to wear one of those lav mics, Butch, you know, you've seen me in them before. 
and it clips on and you're portable and you're wireless. I don't like holding a microphone, it makes me feel like an old timey stand-up comic or something. I like to just talk to people, just walk around and I certainly don't have a headset because I'm not selling timeshares. And so I had one of these lobs and I was very comfortable with it. So I stood up there in front of everybody and I looked out and I realized I'm not on radio. I'm not on radio. I have to see these faces. I have to look into the eyes of those who are listening to me and then even worse, I get to see reactions. And if you can read people's micro face reactions or think you can, yeah, that's what it is. If you think you can, it's absolutely torture if you're self-conscious. And I'm not to that place. I'm not to that area of wisdom in my art world, my performance world, where I can not feel judging glares. It just gets inside of you. I don't know what it is. I wish I could. That's why it's always good if the lighting obscures the audience's faces. It just looks like I'm standing here in the spotlight, like I'm being interrogated in the future. So I stood up there with my little love mic and I talked about Lincoln and I gesticulated and I tried to vary my voice and be like that sonorous and yet I'd get peppy. And this went on for a while and I looked at those faces and I started to get a little bit of anxiety. And the anxiety started as a very slow hum. It came on just like a uh, ocular migraine might. You say, what is this little flashy bit of colored sparkly in my visual field? And then here it comes and the anxiety started to grow. And it's like, do I smell, am I smelling burning toast or I'm having a stroke? And then you go, no, I'm smelling fire, I'm feeling smoke, something's on fire, something's burning. And the thing that burning is turning out to be some kind of defenses you have against being uh, consumed by your own brain, your own self-consciousness, reacting too much, having mirror neurons go crazy. And I started to have an anxiety attack, but gee, I started to freak out. And here I am standing on stage with this mic, and then I remembered that I had done a shtick. And a lot of people have done this shtick, where if you have one of these wireless mics that's on your lapel, and then you forget it's there, and then you wander off to the bathroom, you can do a little comedy bit where you pretend you don't know that you're being monitored in the potty. And I wasn't gonna do that, I'm not about to do that. I might have kind of done that, but in reality, what I wanted to do was disappear for a minute and go and do radio. So, acting like it was part of the act, I dismissed myself, said I'm gonna to head to the bathroom or something like that, just y'all chat among yourselves. And then I walked towards the bathroom and into this back room. There was a back room there that they weren't using. It looked like another bar where they have even smaller acts. I don't even know what that would be. Just a single miniature poodle there sitting humming. It was that small. But it was another bar in the back and it was completely empty. And I just began to do my radio show. You know the way I do all the time, which is just sort of talk to nothing. Because talking to people, it just became overwhelming. And I started to overthink it. I go, what am I saying to these people? Why should they pay attention? Why am I wasting their time? This is so strange. And then I thought, you know, I started early. And now I see people walking in uh, halfway through. And I don't, I'm not offended. I feel bad. I go, oh, no, they missed the beginning of the show. And I think that's when it was good. And it's gone downhill from there. And now they just see the end. Oh, all sorts of guilt. Well, eventually, those thoughts take over. 
So I'm sitting in the back room and I'm sitting at the table and I'm pretending the mic isn't on and I'm saying things like, oh, I'm glad that I have this little break here that I'm taking an intermission. And then I said things that are more uh, self-reflective. I was able to slow down a bit. All right, it's okay. Just talk to yourself like you normally do. Just speak like you normally do. And see, that's the key anyway, Butch, isn't it? I mean, I'm saying things I'm thinking about, so it's not very difficult to come up with things to talk about because I'm actively thinking about those things, right? But somehow, when I see people reacting, maybe I know that their brains are going out on tangents that mine's not going out on. For instance, I start talking about Lincoln or Cooper Union. I could have mentioned Cooper Union and mentioned that I have a friend there. And his name is Topper. Well, that's his last name. He has a first name, but I know him from college, and so he's always going to be Topper. Isn't that strange how people you know when you're a kid, they get to keep that nickname? I think it's just a power thing. You're trying to make them small again. You're trying to diminuta, diminuta, make them smaller. It's just a way of putting them down a little bit, but affectionately, it's a way of saying, we were once peers, even though now you're the chair of the chemistry department. So that's the way my brain might work. And then I'll start thinking about all things Topper, like walking to German class together. We had a German class together, Topper and I. What a nice guy. He was always very affable and he wore glasses and we were walking to class one time and it was in one of these buildings in college and they had these double doors. And sometimes when double doors are both open, there is still a steel column. I guess it's steel, a steel column where both of those doors will latch onto. Do you follow me? So they're not those kind of double doors that you open up and there's a great big space that you could drive a golf cart through. It's still essentially two small doors. Well, they were both open because a lot of students were coming and going, and Topper and I were engaged in some very deep conversation, I'm sure, because I love to have very deep conversations in between classes with people, and we were facing each other, and I walked through the door, and Topper was facing me and speaking, and he believed he was walking through the door, and then he was confronted with a sort of reality, a sort of physical reality that defied his will, He wanted to go forward, but the universe and the earth said, no, your face is going to slam into a steel column and it's going to toss your glasses out to the side and you're going to make a sound like oof or God or something like that. And you're going to go crashing to the ground, sort of concussed. And to me, he just disappeared. I could have kept going, in fact. I go, oh, I guess... Topper was vaporized. I guess he was sucked up into a ship. I guess no German class for him. And because I'm secretly competitive, I'm thinking, hey, I'm going to pass this quiz and he didn't even show up for it. But then I realized that he was on the ground. I do think he went back to his dorm, which is very rare. And I went on to class. But he was rattled. It was horrible. I don't even remember what we were talking about, but I'll never forget that. It interjected itself into my life quickly. It had, (coughs) pardon me, impact. Go ahead and cough. No, I'm good. I think that sometimes I like to stop things like that. 
I mean, not in a violent way. I don't want to ever be a metal pole in somebody's path and make them slam into it, but it is nice to get shaken out of complacency. I gotta tell you, it's nice to feel nervous. I don't welcome an anxiety attack, but the thing that drove me into the back room, I still hear about that from people who were there. They say, I remember you doing that. I remember when you walked off like that. I didn't know if it was real or not, and I never let on whether it was. Because the beginning part wasn't real. I was pretending to be crazy, and then when I was actually crazy, they're thinking, is he pretending? And then I realized, of course, there's a fine line. Isn't it all theater? Isn't it all theater? Who am I going to pretend to be when I see these people for the first time? I might have a reputation. They might expect something. Oh, I've been enjoying your show, Hardy. I was thinking, what is he like? I'm going to meet him now. I wonder if he's really like that. And that will make you self-conscious. Because I want to be liked. Who wouldn't want to be liked? I mean, my attitude is never, I don't care what people think. If it were, I wouldn't be doing something like that. I wouldn't be in the caring what people think business. Business. I say business, a preoccupation. It wouldn't take up all my time. Communication. So, whenever I set out to communicate, I also invite all the things that come with it. And Butchie, sometimes, it has friends. It has scary friends. Oh, I all know all about scary friends. <laughs> yeah, right? So, it, it has people that it brings with it or ideas that it brings with it. For instance, I can go on and, 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 and do a show and do uh, lots of uh, stories, right? But you never know really whether I experienced that or didn't. If it has a lot of details, you think, well... That sounds like something that Hardy may have experienced. And then there's things that obviously I didn't. For instance, I was doing a live show one time and I said, well, as you all know, I'm a time traveler and I just came back from the Middle Ages and I met Isaac the Blind, who was a famous Kabbalist. And we talked for a while and we had all these discussions. And then Shemp Howard showed up or something like that. I said something like that. Shemp Howard showed up. And I remember I gave him a soda or something. And I included all these details. Now... I had thought about that scenario a very long time, so in my imagination, it was like it happened. You know how when you're describing a movie, and you can go on and on with details, and you think, well, those are a lot of details. That almost seems like real life, because you're getting exactly as much information as you do in real life. So when you reduce real life to a story, it's almost exactly like you're telling people what had happened in an Iron Man movie. Well, this was just like that. So if you relate a story and has enough details... People will assume it's true, unless, unless you say, this is about Iron Man, or unless you say, I met Shemp while I was time traveling. Then people won't believe it. I always assume that you're lying, but I don't care, which is just exactly the same as thinking you're telling the truth. Yes, that's kind of true, isn't it? And so when I tell a story that has a detail that's unbelievable... It's easy to discount, and you might overlook that it's really essentially true, or I might say something true, and it doesn't have enough details, so you think, well, maybe you didn't get anything out of it. There's this idea that everything that we go through can be reduced to a plot or a storyline. The other day, I was going through my grandmother's diary. It was very strange. She has things tucked in there occasionally, and she had tucked in here a clipping. And I have it with me. 
Here it is, Butch. Oh, yeah. So it's, uh, it's for an appearance of uh, Nina Fosh, the actress, actor, in A Streetcar Named Desire in 1964. They would have said actress in 64. Maybe not. Maybe yes or no. But anyway, I apologize. But it was 1964 and Nina Fosh, Streetcar Named Desire. So I decided I would go on a sort of Nina Fosh kick, right? I'd look up uh, all her appearances in movies or TVs, and I would try to watch a couple performances because I had heard that she taught acting, and I wanted to see what somebody who taught acting did when they acted. You know how that is. If you're going to take music lessons, you'd like to go and see your music teacher perform maybe, say, are you any good? If I'm already better than you, it would be absurd for me to pay you for lessons. And so, not that I intended to take lessons with Nina Fosh, but I went and I looked at some of her work. And then I found out that you could see her classes online, that you could go and get the videos. You could watch it just like you were in the class and you couldn't show up because you were sick, but you were watching all your classmates do exercises. And you got to see her sit there and recount all these stories about when she was in movies and television, how you do it and how you read a script. And so she was telling them that to really memorize a script, to really know how to act, you have to be able to analyze the script to break it up. And so she would make them take a movie that they all knew or a story that they all knew, Casablanca, and then she would ask them, well, what's it about? What's it about? And so she did this in this one video, and she asked a student to read it, and they said, I only have one sentence. And she goes, well, I already know you did it wrong. And they read their one sentence, and it read like a TV guide, encapsulated synopsis of what the episode was going to be. And she said, wrong. And then another person did theirs, but it was one of those really detailed ones, you know, when you ask somebody what a movie was about, and you wanted the first thing, the TV guide thing, and what they give you is a sort of blow-by-blow, scene-by-scene account of what happened. With all the details that they noticed, well, that's what this person did. And they said, well, that's what it's about. And she, she said, yes, that's about as close as we're going to get in this class of dummies. Well, she didn't say that, but her attitude inferred that. And then she said, you know, on top of that, on top of knowing what this thing is about, you must also understand what the spine is. What's the spine that connects it? And she was making all these analogies to, like, really dissecting something, taking it apart figuring out how it works. And I thought, well, if you're a puppeteer, this is perfect. Yes, you should play with a skeleton. I was wondering about an actor. I don't know. I don't know what you're trying to do. I don't know if the story is really important. I mean, what if I'm in some sort of play that doesn't have a story? I mean, what if the point is just being a certain emotion? Is that too broad? I mean, if I was a clown and I was going into a circus and I started asking you sort of all these method acting questions about, well, what's my motivation? And they say... They would even be broader. Maybe they'd say your motivation is to keep your job and then I'd have to figure it out on my own. And it's just like Ken telling you, you can do whatever you want on the air. You can do whatever you want on stage. It's too much. Well, I say that with Ken, but you know, when I started, he said, maybe you ought to play some music too. He said, maybe you ought to play some old timey music things because he looked at me and he thought, well, you're a country person. You know, you're from Kentucky, so you must be, you uh, you probably play the banjo and who knows. I'm not saying that this is a stereotype, I'm saying this is just what people think, it's okay. I mean, if you said you were from France, I'd say, where's the beret? Why don't you smell like a sort of uh, bacteria, the same kind that's in a shoe? I'm making a cheese reference. If you were from France, you'd know that, and it'd be okay. And I'm okay with it, and you say, oh, the guy lives in Kentucky. 
I don't even have a Kentucky accent. That's the thing. But people see what they want to see. And maybe he saw that, and maybe he didn't. Who knows? But uh, I was playing these country songs, and I was playing old-timey mountain music, and I love this stuff. You know, I just coincidentally love this stuff because I play a lot of instruments, and so eventually you stumble on the banjo, and if you stumble on the banjo, you stumble on the music that people have recorded on it. And so you discover this kind of music. And, of course, we've all seen movies like, Oh, Brother, Where Art Thou? And then you see somebody singing conversation with death and you think oh I bet there's an original version of that and then you find the Birdzilla Wallen original version of that and you think oh my gosh this is this is metal and uh it just opens up a whole world of appreciation but I was playing those things and then eventually he heard it and he said well listen you know I'm thinking now you don't have to play the music necessarily it seems like you could just talk and talk and talk like that and hopefully say something yeah, I'm not so sure you say anything. Well, I think I do. I mean, I guess what my point is that anything says something, right? I mean, there's these cartoons, these jokes where people are misinterpreting art or something or at an art museum, right? And there's these paintings and they're abstract paintings and then in between them is something that's not a painting. I don't know whether it's a fire hose on a wall or something like that or a sign that says, do not touch the art. And the unsophisticated person mistakes that for art and that's supposed to be the joke that you have to be in on knowing whether something is art or not, otherwise you look like an idiot. But that sends totally the wrong message because I look at that and I think, well, maybe the thing they're appreciating is intrinsically the nicest thing to look at and that says nothing about the idea of abstract art or cubism or anything like that. It just happens to be that all things may have some sort of aesthetic worth. So I get really irked when I see stuff like that. Or I get really mad when I hear people say, oh, this fella does this thing where he just rambles, he's doing double talk. That can't be. I know that I've got an idea, and I know that the story I give, usually something concrete that follows all the rules of telling a story, it'll have characters, it'll have people to relate to, all that is there. You know? So, it doesn't mean that I haven't already interpreted it. So it does have a point, and it might be linked to the next story. Now, at the end of this performance, at this end of the first performance that I did in the East Village, I don't really remember. I'm not sure that I remember whether people liked it or not. I can't recall. I know that people have said to me, oh, I remember being there, but I can only tell you four, five, six people that I know for sure that were there. Otherwise, I have no idea. I guess I blocked it out. I could probably figure out who was there and who wasn't, but that's not part of the memories. In that case, maybe the expectation is what formed the story. I'm thinking now I'm telling it like that because... I'm telling you details that either conformed with my fears or defied them. And then I'm relating it to you. So as I think about performing in the future, in other times, oh, there was a time at Monty Hall Butchie, a time that I got overcome. I think it was the same show that I had mentioned, Time Traveling with Shemp. 
it might have been a Purim show. I might have been doing something about Purim, which, as you know, is a very strange Jewish holiday. And it's based on the book of Esther, and the story is very literal, but it's also one of those stories that's very symbolic, and it is associated with theater and making things up and performing it as a play. And you wonder, what's the real message here? I mean, if the tradition is that you dress up and you clown and you do this kind of stuff and you put on a spiel, a Purim spiel, then is it really serious? What's going on? And then it's one of those strange things where it's this poetic work that has mysterious elements, like it doesn't even mention God, like where's God? Is one of the people in there God and they've changed the name of the character? And you think, well, that's kind of genius. So all these things are in my mind. All this stuff is going on, and these are complex things, right? They're emotional things, they're religious things. And I'm thinking about the holiday. And I'm out there, and I'm talking about, I'm at Shemp time traveling, and I sort of mention a Kabbalist, and I'm going into talking about Purim, and I'm going to tell the story, because it's a good story, and it's scary. And it just really encapsulates a lot of things about human nature and it's really no different than doing any other kind of play. You could be doing uh, Hamlet, you could be doing any kind of Shakespeare, you could do Don Quixote. It'd be better if you did Don Quixote. If Purim was all about just doing Don Quixote, it'd be even a better holiday. But I went out there and I did this and as I was doing it I looked out into this room and you know Butchie, you can see people, you can see faces you can see people you know, and it's great because they're warm and they're welcoming, but there was one seat, and there was one seat, and there was a different person in it than there was the last year, and that last year, that person was my friend David, and my friend David celebrated Purim all the time, and he would send me hamantaschen in the mail, and he was a really sweet fella, and I just, I really had this great relationship with him that I just formed just by being on radio, nothing else. That was the total of our contact was this him hearing my voice on the radio, relating to it in some way, sharing his life with me. And so we became friends and we talked about things like Jewish mysticism and the brain. So he was a brain scientist and a doctor. And so he was very interesting. And you know, I'm really uh, attracted to people that are you know, genius and who have things they can teach me and I can ask them questions, I can ask them naive questions and they indulge me and they'll explain things to me and they don't feel superior to me because they sense that I have a real curiosity and I'm doing it in a spirit of love and appreciation and so it was one of those relationships and that year he had died and I didn't know he had died, I was just trying to look up what he was up to and I found his obituary. And then, as I was on stage, I started thinking about that. I started thinking about him and how much he'd appreciate it. And but I tell you, I just started to, to, to lose it. Now, it was near the end of the performance, so it wasn't a, a, a terrible thing, and I'm not sure anybody noticed it. But then when I got backstage, I just collapsed. I collapsed onto my knees. I began to sob, and I don't know why. People really had enjoyed the performance, if that's what it was kind of a lecture about nothing. But for me, it was also this experience of noticing my friend's absence in the situation that was really the only time of the year that we ever saw each other in person. And then that was stark. It was like Topper running into an iron post. 
all of a sudden, I was way ahead of myself in time. You know, you're thinking about the future, you're thinking about other things, and then the present and the reality of things just comes right up on you. And I was smacked that hard with it. And now, so, you know, I have a little bit of hesitation. Every time that I want to present something to somebody, I'm worried it's going to uh, dig something up. I'm going to have some kind of memory, you know. So I try to think about things ahead of time. Kind of work them out in my head. Uh, including the emotions. How am I going to feel about saying this thing? Now, I think people do that even when they are selling timeshares. What, what are you talking about? Well, when you sell anything, and I don't mean this as a slag on sales or anything, but unfortunately it's true when you sell anything, there's a certain amount of deception involved, isn't there? I mean, I'm not going to tell you everything that's wrong with this car. I want you to buy it now. I'm not trying to fool you necessarily, and I'm not trying to steal from you, but that ends up what it is. It's a moral question. If I don't tell you this car's been in an accident, that's a sort of lying, right? A lying by omission. I have to tell you everything. But in sales, in sales, you purposely hold things back. You don't want to upset the deal. You don't want to convince them not to buy it. So you're not really being objective at all, right? There's a, a certain amount of lying. And so you have to tell yourself that it's morally okay, that the outcome, me getting money, is just as important as not telling a lie. And so when you get up there to sell something like timeshares, you're going to convince people, and I've already made a decision not to sell you certain things. I've changed reality a bit. And when you do that, you're making moral decisions every time you're telling something. I have to think about the impact of my words, and then I decide whether I should say it or not. You know, but there's some things, there's some things that are huge, and people just let out the words. You know how that is. And they change things. Now, I remember, I don't even know if this is true, you know how you remember things because you want them to be true or because it sounds like a poem or if you said it in a certain voice or at a party, it would make you sound smart, like you've made an observation. Well, this is one of those things where I realized that the word in Hebrew for bees and words is very close. It's a very close thing. I think it's like the difference between Deborah and Devorah or something like that. And so I got obsessed with that. And every time I'd see a reference to words, I'd think of bees and vice versa. So if I, I see bees flying, I think those are words. And then, you know, you can just kind of extend the uh, analogy or whatever and think that, well, you know, bees and words sting and they make honey. They do good things. They could be destructive or they can be positive. It just depends on the, the context, you know. And so I thought about that with words, and I became even more self-conscious. You can absolutely talk yourself out of art, Butchie. I've done it before. You get an idea, and then, God forbid, the next idea should be, is this idea worth sharing? Because that sometimes stops you cold. And there you are. And I've thought about this multiple times. And so you have to kind of go into a different headspace. You know how it is. You go into a different place when you deliver it. But then... You're not present. Yeah, I remember the first uh, time you were on radio. People would, or early on, people would ask whether you were reading a script or whether you were improvising. Yes, that was very important to people. They wanted to know whether I had thought of those words ahead of time, written them down, 
and was now reading them or had memorized them and was simply parroting them back. Now, this is very interesting to me because I thought, the first time I heard, did you think of those words ahead of time? I thought, well, of course I did. And then they said, did you write them down? And then I think, well, I don't think so. Maybe, sometimes. But what's the difference? Sort of what is the difference between thinking up something before you say it? Well, the obvious difference is that you can edit a thing. You can go back and change things. You can make it sound more polished, like your thoughts were more connected. You know, when people are just speaking, they tend to have disjointed thoughts, or they jump around from one topic to the next. But if you're writing a book or something, or if I'm writing a monologue, things are going to be connected, right? I have that perspective. I can change it after the fact. It's like a time machine. It is like a time machine. You've changed things you've said, essentially. But am I not editing as I'm speaking as well? Isn't it just about when the thing happened? I remember when I was reading about a taxi driver, I read there was a scene between Jodie Foster and, and between De Niro, and they're in this restaurant, and they wanted to make it work really desperately, so they started to improvise, and then they just kept improvising, but then they improvised themselves into a permanent exchange, a permanent dialogue. They changed the original script, and they replaced it with this one that they had written together by coming up with it spontaneously, which is no different than writing it. You're just memorizing as you write. Now, in music, if you say, Thelonious Monk, you're not the... You're not the Thelonious monk of words. No, I know it was a bad. But just say Thelonious monk. Are you are you writing it? Are you making it up? Did you write it and and are now playing it? So you see, does it matter when you hear something? I mean, this is the same thing with the art that I was talking about earlier with the abstract paintings. Did the artist mean to do that? And people do this with Pollock all the time. They'll mention Jackson Pollock. People even meant it pejoratively, say that's just like a mess. It's an explosion. It's a controlled explosion. You know, there's that scene in the Twin Peaks, The Return, where the camera goes, and goes inside of the exploding nuclear bomb. And it's just absolute chaos. But in, in another way, it's absolutely beautiful. It's a composition. So just both nothing is going on and everything is going on at once. It's a really interesting thing to think about. And you know, every time you make art, you end up exploring those possibilities. And where am I going to take this? How am I going to explode it? And what's it going to be? Will I embed some sort of hallucination in that abstract thing? Or will I let people's minds go crazy? Will I let them project something onto it? If you're going to see faces, you're going to see faces. Yeah, I don't think the Camel Cigarettes uh, artist put faces in the camel. No, I think Delirium Tremens did that. I think just, you know, uh, years of people staring at it when they were uh, having uh, neurological problems. I mean, that kind of contributed to it too. Now, you can't anticipate that. And everybody who's ever been on the radio understands that. They understand that you don't have any control over who's listening. And that is something that you have to accept Morally, that's a precondition. You don't get to choose your audience. But also, you don't get to choose how they interpret it. I mean, don't you? I mean, you do and you don't. You can say what your intention is, 
but I've mentioned this before with like uh, with Alan Moore's uh, Rorschach, where people liking him unironically, you know, liking him because they think they agree with him. When Alan Moore created him as a cautionary tale, this is not a person to admire. This is crazy and bad and destructive. But you make something that's so realistic, crazy and bad and destructive that there's people who like crazy and bad and destructive, they're going to be attracted to it. So if I make something and say, oh, I made something, this is supposed to be repulsive, you got to understand that there's people that find that not repulsive. So you've just made something not repulsive too. So I can make something I think is totally different than what you might see. And that's frightening. Oh, it is frightening. But I think the way that you get, not around it, but the way that you can justify it is by making your intentions clear. I mean, if Alan Moore had said, well, you just see in it what you see in it, that might be dangerous. But if he says, no, if you like this character, you're an idiot or you're violent or you're cruel, that makes sense. And so I can tell you in very concrete terms, in sort of legalistic terms, what I think about a thing I'm saying, what the real message is. And so that's why I always sort of come back to this really simplified thing. And even if I'm trying to do something sophisticated, butchy, I make it simple because at the end of the day, at the, and by the end of the day, I mean at my ultimate demise or at the end of this art, there's something that I would like to convey. And it isn't anything destructive, or it isn't anything that's menacing, or it isn't anything that's uh, vindictive or cruel. So I'll make that very clear. And then I try to convey that maybe I want to do something that's more akin to love or compassion. Yeah, but you know those words. Oh, those words, if they've been painted in cursive on an old piece of wood and hung on someone's house so long that not only are they meaningless, but you really want to dislike them just because they've been absolutely abused. You know, I, I understand that. And so I try not to mention it, which is also strange too. I find other ways of saying what love is or what it means to to not want pain. Funny, I got to paint in the negative. But I do that because I understand uh, that those symbols might have been ruined. You know, the first time that you go over to a friend's house and they just bought a new house and, and you see on the front doorstep, you see swastikas and you think, Oh my God, are they a Nazi? But you know that's not true. And then you realize, and you put two to two together, that maybe because they're uh, South Asian, that maybe it has something to do with religion or that they had a housewarming ceremony where the, uh, their, their aunties came over and blessed the house and that's what you're looking at. And since that symbol wasn't intended for me, there was no reason for them to think, uh-oh, Hardy's gonna think we're Nazis. You see, but if I was to take that symbol and then put it in public, you understand that I have to understand it's ruined. 
So there's certain things that I need to be aware of that those symbols might have been taken and used by someone else to the point that they don't mean what I think they mean. So in a way, you got to find uh, new ones or nonsensical ones. And I don't mind doing that. So, you know, for instance, you, you and I, we have a relationship. Yeah. And it's based as much on what we don't have in common as what we have in common. I don't have much hearty in me. And so I need you as a sort of external hearty. I need to walk around with your inclinations in close proximity to me should I have to make a decision that involves some strength that you have that I do not have. And I believe that my relationship to you is the same. I believe that I have inclinations that benefit you because you lack them. Now, I might have them in uh, too much uh, of them. You know, I accept that. I accept that. I'm not perfect. And maybe I'm extreme, but maybe you, maybe some of your positives are also excessive. You know, you can have too much of a good thing. Say, look at this beautiful ship laden with gold that is sinking. And so all good things in moderation as well. But it is nice to have compliments. Oh, yeah, we all love compliments. No, you know what I mean. Like something to offset something else. You know how like Thai food is really well balanced when it comes to all the elements on your tongue. Or sort of freshness mixed with something else. Yeah, like salty, sweet balance. Precisely. And so, when you get those things right, you need elements from different places. They're never really enough on their own. I would be absolutely insufferable as the only person on this show. I understand that. Yeah, so you know what I'm saying. And then Lou fulfills something else. Um, I don't know. There, there, maybe we part ways there. No, I know, I know you're joking. He does, though. But that's my way of communicating something. That's my way of demonstrating in sort of concrete way, you know, through a character, these things in ourselves that make the experience the point and not the story. So, you know how it is with something immersive. If you've ever seen any kind of immersive theater, you know that it's not just what you've seen and what you see is different than what somebody else saw. You know, when I went to sleep no more with other people, I purposely ditched everyone. I didn't want anybody in my group to walk around with me because I didn't want to share my experience until the end when we could all put together our different ones. So for instance, I'm walking around, there's going to be things I didn't see. That's just the way immersive theater is. And you know in that McKittrick Hotel, it's got layers of floors. You're not going to see everything on a floor and they kind of force you down, down, down to the finale in the basement. Well, I wanted to be by myself getting my individual perspective. I didn't want to be with a friend. And so at the end, we got to do that thing where you get together and you say, what did you see? What did you see? Then you, pick, you piece together a picture that's bigger than you could possibly see by yourself. And that's the theater.
That's amazing, even the people that present the theater don't know what's going to happen. They don't know who's going to be there. And I love it when something goes wrong. There was this lady that wouldn't keep on her mask and kept talking, wouldn't obey the rules and everything. You're not supposed to talk. You're not supposed to take off your mask. But there was one unruly lady. She must have been drunk or something, and that became part of the performance. I mean, it wasn't part that anybody wanted, you know. But I like a little bit of chaos sometimes. I realize that's human nature. It's really dumb to expect people to behave all the time. You know there's going to be some kind of jackass that comes in and kicks over the china. And that's part of the theater, too. And if I'm going to walk out there with an experience that's based on what I saw and what I felt, oh, those are feelings, too. And so, I don't, uh, nothing is ever ruined if you're in that kind of state of listening or watching. But if you're also in that kind of state of listening and watching when you're performing, you're going up on the stage, God help you. And that's why I became terrified. And that's why it's to this day, Butchie, I am so self-conscious often. And that self-consciousness, I think, comes from uh, being self-reflective. Is it? Is it? I feel like you're spinning it to be a positive thing when it could just as easily be a sort of self-obsessed narcissism. This idea that people are even watching you or thinking about you that deeply to make any kind of moral judgment is a little bit arrogant. You know, you can walk around saying, oh, I'm so self-conscious. Everybody, this shirt, it does, this blouse doesn't fit properly. Who cares? Nobody's even looking at you. I think of that all the time when somebody complains, oh, my hair looks terrible today. I got news for you. Nobody sees your face either. They don't see your hair. They don't see your face. You're just invisible. So I'm very sorry about that. So it kind of makes your problematic hair moot. And I feel that way with a lot of things, you know. If you're self-conscious, maybe that's because you're sort of self-obsessed. Maybe you should just let go of all that. Now, there's a way to be in the world without being the center of it. You don't have to be, and you don't have to be the other thing where you're all selfless. You're walking around a state of absolute selflessness where you're everybody's puppet, and they can use you for whatever, like you're a broom. But you don't want that. No, you want to walk around with some sort of sense of autonomy, don't you? Well... There you go. That's how I see it. I don't know about your perspective on things sometimes. I think that what you think is attention to detail or craft is just navel-gazing. There's a way of being outside yourself a little more where you kind of lose yourself, but you still get to be you. That's what I'm going for. So I don't mind if people look at me and think, that guy's a caricature, or he believes something dumb or simplistic. My religion and I know it's become the focus of some of the episodes of the show, Dalgarianism is, I believe, an arbitrary decision that I made to believe in some sort of system, some framework for moral beliefs, a code of conduct. But it could have been anything. I could have picked any. I just went in the phone book and I looked for something. I also wanted something that I would, they would accept me as well. So I tested out a few. You know, like places tout that, they say, we don't care who you are, we take anybody, we have love in our hearts, but then when you're with them, you get a vibe, right? Like, you're not exactly who we had in mind. You say, thank you very much, I'm going over here to Society of Freaks or whatever, where they will accept me. Uh, but then you got a problem there, too, because you want them to be selective. What is that Groucho Marx thing, you know, I don't want to be in a club that would have me? Well, that's no good. That's also false modesty. You're full of it.
you know very well that it's the other way around. You're like, I'm too good for this place. That's what you're really thinking. And so you got to examine that. Now, I'd never call anybody out like that because this is a very personal thing. So even on the radio, you know, it's iffy. So, well, maybe you think you're self-conscious and humble and shy, but actually you're, you think you're a little prince or something. Yeah, little prince. Yeah, little prince, little prince. Standing on a big old, I always thought that was going to be difficult for that, that little prince because standing on the planet's too small. And sometimes I feel like the planet I've made is too small, that I've made my world too small, Butch. I feel like it's a bigger place than I give it credit for. And I think there's more than I can do, and I really have limited myself to those three doors at Monty Hall, that I'm just gonna pick one. And it has, it's been pointed out many times, you know, when people look at that paradox or when they look at the show itself, they think, you know, sometimes the prizes aren't prizes and sometimes the booby prizes are something I'd want. You know, it's a big joke. You say, oh, I wish I had the goat, but maybe you do. I mean, maybe the goat is worth more than the thing they want to give you. Because when they give you that car, you got to pay taxes on it. So you might have a free $10,000 car, but now you have a $2,000 tax bill or something like that. Well, now what? So now you're out money. Well, you sell the car. Well, sell the goat. Well, pick door number four. Pick door number 16. Make up your own doors. They don't have to be doors. Open both of them at the same time, but understand there could be a steel rod in there. Don't run into it. Don't run into the doors you open. Man, we're about to clear the place out. We stayed for a long time. This conversation went on a very long time. I'm not sure I agree with everything you say because I don't understand what you're talking about. But by and large, <clears throat> I think that you're onto something. There is something about performance, theater, self-consciousness, our interactions with one another, the experiential nature of life, and how that's really related to purpose, how that's about as close to purpose as we could possibly get. I understand that. I think you're kind of on to something. I'm not sure that you have nailed it down completely. I feel like you, you're still kind of splattering paint and hoping for faces. And maybe if you follow certain prescribed patterns, that will work. But I'm not so sure. Yeah, I often feel that way. As if I am just sort of... You know, if you do have an infinite amount of choices, there's all this possibility that you could ask for something on this infinite menu and it just not be there. Because who knows where they are in the universe, you know? I don't mean to be uh, mysterious, but not everything I can imagine might be available to me. I've had strange dreams recently that I become really aware that the dream is a dream, you know? I just start arguing with people and saying there's just not enough information here for this to be reality. Or I know for a fact this all started a second ago and it's gonna end in a couple seconds that we haven't been here for a long time. And they look at me like you're ruining it. And maybe, <laughs> maybe I am. Maybe that's kind of ruining it, you know, by pointing out that it's a dream. You know, just go with it, keep that to yourself. And maybe you can use it, you know, sort of steer the dream, sort of lucid live. Maybe we could lucid live. <laughs> yeah. Hey, let's get out of here. All right.
You're listening to Miracle Nutrition with Hardy White on WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope, 91.9 in Rockland County and New York City, New York, and online worldwide at WFMU.org. October is come, breezing like a dearest listener, my dear generous intelligent listener, October is come, October is come, the Hellraiser in its sidecar, donate today, October is come, breezing like a Harley D down that spiraling thoroughfare we call time, the Hellraiser in its sidecar, palms outstretched in the crisp autumn air careening into the ever earlier sunset, Please donate today. HTTPS colon forward slash forward slash WFMU.org. Enter. HTTPS colon forward slash forward slash WFMU.org. Into your browser's query field. That's correct. A listener just like yourself can use an internet just like your own to sustain this 24 hour transmission. Please donate today. HTTPS colon forward slash forward slash WFMU.org. 
one half scroll downward click the words pledge now from there i will leave it to the spirit to guide you Thank <laughs> you. 
at first sight. You are my thought. 